0: she wasn't afraid or standoffish to walk up to a man, even a man in tremendous power, and just launch into a conversation, join a conversation, turn the conversation. She was very comfortable and adept at doing that.
1: That was Judith L. Pearson, author of Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker a new biography about how Mary Lasker used her influence to make the National Cancer Act happen. In this conversation, Pearson delves deep into Lasker's role as the catalytic agent who worked behind the scenes through proxies to accomplish the goal of curing cancer. Pearson's book was published September 19th by Mayo Clinic Press. A transcript of this conversation and an excerpt from Crusade to Heal America appear on CancerHistoryProject.com your interest in Mary Lasker began with your previous book um, from shadows to life. Um, You know, how did this lead you to Mary's story? Well,
0: you know, whenever you read that an ordinary citizen is able to strong arm a president into doing something, that's kind of a boss babe. I want to know. And um, I truly had had only heard about her one other time. And that was actually doing another podcast to promote my previous book. And he talked about the, uh, the uh, host of that podcast talked about her a little bit as well. And that was a series. And so he talked about her in, in one of the series. And so I thought, yeah, this is, this is someone I want to know more about. And as a cancer survivor myself, I'm always really
1: interested in how my life was saved basically so maybe we can start with just how Mary Lasker's interest in cancer began. Um, and I know she had a sort of an early interest in mental health and birth control issues. So how did that sort of, you know, grow into her uh, investment in cancer? The cancer interest actually started when she was a child.
0: Her She grew up in rural Wisconsin or in a small Wisconsin town. Her father was a successful and wealthy banker in Watertown. And her mother was an Irish immigrant who Mary really um, adored. She adored both of her parents, but her mother really sort of set the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah was her name, was very keen on making sure that Mary and her younger sister were educated. Uh, she inspired in them a civic duty, a love for beauty, and that transcends into not only Mary's interest in art, but also in beautification of the world around her. and. And and she was just a highly passionate individual. So when Mary was about five, Sarah took her to visit the family laundress, who had just had, the story doesn't tell whether it's a single or a double mastectomy, but in any event, as they're walking to this little house, Sarah says to Mary that this woman's breasts had been removed. And Mary looks at her and says, you mean cut off? And Sarah confirmed that that was indeed what she meant. And the scene that Mary encountered just stuck with her forever. This woman laying on a low cot in a small, stuffy house, surrounded by her children. And she looked so ill and so pitiful. And there's no accounting as to whether or not she survived. But it just really stuck with Mary that this was something horrible that had to be stopped. And then Mary herself survived the 1918 Spanish flu. And during that experience, she decided that if she ever had the ability, she was going to eliminate human suffering. Oh, if it was only that simple. (laughs) But she really, that really stuck with her. And in the 30s, um, Margaret Sanger was a very prominent Uh, New York advocate for birth control. She had been one of 17 children. Her mother died in childbirth when the last one was born. So Margaret was charged with caring for her younger siblings and then became a nurse and was called often to um, tend to women who had tried to self-abort and were bleeding to death. So she created the Birth Control Federation of America, which Mm -hmm. made the newspapers, because birth control was a very taboo word, and the newspaper was something Mary devoured every day of her life. And so that was how she got to know about that cause. And she, too, thought it it was very important, because when the Federation was originally created, their one and only interest was in educating women on birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she also read articles about a movement called the mental hygiene movement. So mm-hmm. hygiene, of course, is the act of staying clean and of being clean. And so this movement had had kind of flipped the mental illness thing um, on its head and said, well, look, instead of worrying about people when they are suffering from mental illness. What if we could teach people and that of course would take away any any genetic or congenital um, illnesses, but what if we could teach people how to prevent mental illness? So they had conferences and they were very prominent in schools and it, it's really a great idea. I mean, a hygiene movement overall, the word has a different connotation today, but, you know, we should be able to pay very little to go for annual physicals and all the preventative medicine that can keep us healthy. That's way less expensive than having to run around being treated for stuff. Mm -hmm. So those were kind of the things that, and mental illness, like birth control and cancer were taboo words in- um, much of the first half of the 20th century.
1: How did her views on the subject and sort of what we needed to do to fund cancer and, you know, beat cancer and cure cancer, how did her views differ from others on the topic?
0: Well, in the first place, she was convinced that it could be conquered and could be cured. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been other successful um uh, movements and cures and treatments for diseases. And in the 30s and 40s, we thought cancer was a single disease. And it's particularly then after the polio vaccine, which came much later, but still the idea that you take um, a pill or some kind of inoculation and the disease is gone. And of course, polio has a much smaller family, just a couple of cousins, unlike cancer which is vast so that was one thing she was convinced it could be cured and then the second thing that she she repeated this in her oral history so many times that so many people believed that heart disease heart attacks and strokes and then cancer were just god's will and so since it was god's will there was really nothing that could be done so you know why worry about it and mm-hmm. that mentality permeated the old guard of research as well. You know, we're not not coming up with any new ideas. There doesn't seem to be anything promising on the horizon. It's the will of God. And Mary absolutely refused that. And her famous line is, it's
1: just a simple pill that a simple doctor can give to a suffering patient. You know, another aspect I wanna get into here is sort of talking about her marriage with Albert. Um, Can you tell me about, they met in 1939, I believe. There. Tell me about their marriage, and what, you know, fascinates you about it. They almost didn't happen.
0: <laughs> Harry was having lunch with a friend at um, club twenty one or just twenty one. and um at a table nearby, Albert was having lunch with a couple of other men who Mary knew. And so as you would, you know, you kind of smile. And one of the gentlemen came over. And just as an aside, because I think this is so funny. The gentleman who walked over was um, Bill William Donovan. Mm -hmm. Bill Donovan, called Wild Bill, was (laughs) the head of the Office of strategic services during World War II, which is the organization that became the CIA. And one of the OSS's most celebrated women spies was the subject of my second book. So Mm -hmm. when I discovered that Mary and ultimately and Albert both knew Bill Donovan, I was like, wow, this is like too weird. Anyway, so Donovan comes over. Yeah. Donovan comes over, says hello to the ladies. Then points to his table and says, you know whoever the other gentleman was and Albert Lasker and Mary didn't know him and Albert paid no attention. He had been deep in conversation. He had just gotten out of a very um, ill-advised, ill-fated, short marriage with a young starlet and he was unloading himself to his buddies at lunch. So he had no time for another woman. Then lunch went on and they finished at the same time. And as they were all exiting, they again had a chance to be reintroduced by someone else. And again, Albert was like not terribly interested. And Mary thought to herself, that man is making a great mistake, which is just (laughs) so Mary. Finally, they're back out on the street and it was her eyes that Albert noticed first. She had these gorgeous sapphire eyes. And all of a sudden, he realized, he came to and realized um, what a woman she was. She and her friend got in a cab and he asked his buddies, who's going to set me up with this woman? Somehow I have to get to know her. They did indeed meet again at cocktails, um, for cocktails at another person's house. And then he got um, Mrs. Gimble, whose husband owned the famous Gimble's.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, department store, he invited both of them to lunch. She invited both of them to lunch at their um, summer home in Connecticut. And that was when they really got to know each other. And as they spoke, they realized that they had similarities, but they also had interests that the other wasn't aware of. And throughout their marriage, both or each was willing to learn from the other. So it was, it was just this perfect match made in heaven. And they were like teenagers in love.
1: Right. Well, how did their so they were married in 1940, is that right? Correct.
0: So, in June. Uh-huh.
1: So how did they sort of, you know, collaborate on advocating for, you know, better healthcare for Americans? How did they sort of start working on this together? Well,
0: the irony was that Albert's younger brother had died of cancer before he met Mary. Mm -hmm. And um, so he had donated to what was then called the the American Society for the Control of Cancer, now Mm -hmm. known as the American Cancer Society. He also was aware of both the Birth Control Federation of America and um, the mental hygiene movement. And he had donated to both of those as Mary had. So their their illness and health interests were very paralleled. She came at it from this position that if you throw enough money at it, something will happen. Mm -hmm. He, Having been or being at that time the father of modern advertising, he realized that you needed to create public awareness, number one. And then the second thing that he taught her was that even their vast wealth, um, which was incredibly vast at the time, um, at the time and would have been in today's dollars as well, their vast wealth could not cure cancer. But he had been on the shipping board and understood how federal government funding went. And so that was where he told her she needed to go. So they, interestingly enough, went to some congressional hearings on American health that were occurring early on in our involvement in World War II. And what they learned was that 40, 0 percent of all of the enlistees, because a lot of men flew to enlist after Pearl Harbor, 40 percent of them were turned away for really not very serious health issues. And they realized that Americans' health just wasn't a priority and that needed to change. So there was, so then they started looking for, okay, who's researching cancer and heart disease because those two diseases connected were killing 75% of the population. So they went to um, first the Roosevelt Institute, now Roosevelt University, and spoke with a director who said, we really aren't working on cancer research. And when they asked him why he said what I'd said earlier, there just weren't any great ideas. And then Mary individually with a friend went to the American Society for the Control of Cancer to ask the same question and heard the same response, mm-hmm. um, they were they were happy to take her five thousand dollar or five thousand dollar donation, which today is more akin to nearing hundred thousand dollars. Wow. You know, no small potatoes. Right. But they just, as Mary put it, they weren't interested in curing cancer. They were just interested in controlling it. Mm-hmm. So she and Albert. Staged a coup, renamed the society, the American Society, the American Cancer Society, mm-hmm. started a fundraising campaign that year, sort of overtook the fundraising campaign that year, and absolutely quintupled its previous intake. At the same time, they agreed that there must be some answers for cancer. And Mm -hmm. Albert said he was looking for research bargains. So they started the Albert and Mary Lasker Foundation, which is still very much in existence today. And in fact, I'll be at the luncheon in New York um, at the end of September. They began by giving $1,000 prizes, not grants, but prizes, to researchers who had promising research projects um at the luncheon at the end of september they'll be doing the same thing but to the tune of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. and many of the awardees have gone on to become nobel prize winners as well so it's really called the american nobels
1: and then albert passed away in the early 50s of cancer is that is that right he did sadly and um it was
0: pretty much the status quo at the time. It's not even in any of the research that I saw clearly identified. It's called abdominal cancer and intestinal cancer and a malignancy in his abdomen. It was most probably colon cancer um, when it it was it was um treated and he was pronounced having been cured, because that's what they called it in 1950. And then it returned and further investigations showed that it had gone to his lymph nodes, which is why I think it was probably colon cancer. Yeah. And like um, most patients at the time, or many patients at the time, he was not told that he had cancer. The medical feeling was that since there was nothing that could be done, too many patients would just throw up their hands and give up the ghost and die. And so they figured, using other euphemisms like, oh, you have a malignancy or you have um, an illness in your abdomen, but they were giving him medications that Mm -hmm. were going to control it. And he really never left the hospital. And what effect did that have on Mary? Well, by this time, she had already um, added to her address book many congressmen many senators she was good friends with the kennedy fam well the kennedy family but before that with the roosevelts the franklin roosevelts and then the trumans who were pre- and truman was president at the time of albert's death um and she had seen to it that the national institute of health became plural by adding institutes for individual research. The Cancer Institute was just sort of an appendage of NIH until Mary came along and then it became its own freestanding Institute as well. So that just absolutely double. She just doubled down. She was just now really intent on doing absolutely everything she could to cure cancer and you know although she continued her active social life and her visits to France and Italy every summer with Albert gone she had more time quite frankly and so she woke up reading uh, newspapers and pamphlets and congressional um, transcripts and research papers
1: and she went to bed doing the same wow Well, let's jump ahead to this uh, phone call we were discussing earlier um, in which um, President Johnson called her offering her, I think it was the ambassadorship to Finland. Um, Yeah, can you walk me through that story? Sure. And the the really cool thing is
0: that the transcript for that and the actual audio is available um, at the LBJ library website. Mm -hmm. So I actually heard this transpiring. It was so cute. When President Kennedy was elected, as I said, Mary um, was friends with the family, friends with Rose, his mother. And after his father had had a stroke, Mary was keen on her cancer crusade. And after Kennedy's father had had a stroke, talking with some of her other crusaders, they said, you know, what if you expanded the program that you want to present to the president to include heart disease and stroke. They sort of separated those two out at the time Mm -hmm. because then it would be more personal. So Kennedy liked the idea. That project kept getting backburnered as has happened so frequently in the White House because they're bombarded with things, but he was keen to get it off the ground and was actually going to do so when he returned from Dallas in 1963. So when Johnson then became president, um, he had said to her, to everyone, I want to keep in place everything that President Kennedy was working on. So Mary presented him with this idea of a commission and he liked that as well. But he said, you know, I really want to wait until I'm reelected and then I can, you know, I can take it forward. So he is reelected <clears throat> by a landslide. That's why where he got the name landslide uh, Lyndon. Right. And so she thought this is going to be great. So he calls her up, and Mary was of such a social stature, had such a social stature that she actually had an operator in her home who would an assistant who would answer the calls and then say the president's on the phone for you. So he starts in that Texas draw. Listen. I got something I want you to do for me. And then she in her society voice, "Oh, Lyndon, I'll do whatever I can for you." <laughs> and then she he says, "I want you to be ambassador to Finland. I need somebody smart and you're it. You can you can charm anyone." She's shocked. Finland abuts Russia. There was no way she wanted to go to Russia. We were in the high at the height of the Cold War. This was not on her list of things to do, and she says to him, give up my home, give up my my um, my social engagements, and then she really got her wits about her and said, besides, I've got to find answers to this cancer question. There's just, I'm sorry, there's just no way I could do that, but speaking of the cancer question, I'd like to come see you to talk to you about that, <laughs> so he told her not to say no yet, to wait for 24 hours, to rethink it, which was moot she called him back and said I'm still not doing it but I'm still coming to see you and in a lot of the promotional material and descriptions of this book um we use the term she was a feminist who used her femininity wisely Mm. she wasn't a flirt as we think about it today but she wasn't afraid or standoffish to walk up to a man even a man in tremendous power and just launch into a conversation, join a conversation, turn the conversation. She was very comfortable and adept at doing that. Absolutely. So where did this conversation with Johnson lead? Well, so he did indeed move forward on the idea of a commission. And it was it was kind of really interesting because um, During the campaign in 1964, he was asked to speak at Ohio State University at their, uh, and he was the sitting president at the time, he was asked to speak at their graduation. His speechwriter was Richard Goodwin, who um, is the husband of a now very prominent uh, historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. And Goodwin wrote into this speech kind of a throwaway phrase about how Johnson wanted to create create a society, a great society where all Americans could prosper. Well, the press really grabbed this great society idea. And when he went to speak at the University of Michigan's graduation, kind of funny because they're such rivals, he really pegged the whole speech on his great society view and, you know, the war on poverty and the war on education. And so it just fit in this whole idea of not the war on education, the war on lack of education, but this just fit into the whole idea of, a war on cancer, although they didn't say it quite yet, but, and and of making America healthy and, and integrate society, there's healthcare for all. So mm-hmm. she really just launched into that. He did create this commission that she was looking for um, on heart disease, stroke, and cancer. It didn't quite pan out the way she had hoped. Uh, a part of it was to build centers where people with these three diseases could go to be treated, which was all well and good, but she wanted the research to be done. So it got cancer into headlines, but it didn't quite pan out the way she was hoping.
1: Right. Well, let's let's jump to the part where it pans out for her. Um, so obviously with Nixon, um, this moonshot against cancer provided the perfect political opportunity. Um, how did Mary Lasker sort of utilize this moment?
0: Well and just to sort of set the stage a little bit Absolutely. so Mary said to Johnson listen we've explored outer space and and been successful and of course we were still exploring it because we hadn't landed on the mo- and landed on the moon yet why don't we explore inner space like in as in the human body mm-hmm. and you know we've we've um president kennedy said he wanted a moonshot he wanted to land a man on the moon before the decade was out let's let's Take this on. So everyone thinks that a more current president has said that. I think Carter Clinton was um, noted as saying it was his moonshot, and certainly Obama said it, and uh, President Biden is now talking about it. But it was Mary Lasker's. (laughs) So Nixon was elected in 1968, and um, when he was inaugurated in '69, he wanted to make good on Kennedy's promise of landing a man on the moon, which America did successfully in July of 69. And that got married to thinking about how that success came together. It was a government agency that was solely responsible for aeronautics. It was NASA. They weren't part of the Air Force. They weren't part of anything. They were their own thing. She started thinking that the important thing in cancer research was to grab, uh, to have a group of researchers whose sole responsibility was researching cancer. And while we had the National Cancer Institute, it didn't seem that they were doing that. They were bogged down in bureaucracy. And she wanted fast tracking, just like NASA had done with space. The interesting thing was that. Nixon was also troubled by so many demons. He felt that no one liked him. He didn't trust anyone, even in his own White House. And the most terrifying thing of all was having to face another Kennedy on a ballot. Mm -hmm. Good news for Nixon in 1969 was that just before we landed on the moon, Ted Kennedy, was involved in the Chappaquiddick incident. Mm -hmm. So when 1970 dawned, Kennedy wanted redemption. The president was already worried about re-election. All Mary wanted was a cure for cancer. Mm -hmm. And the three quests converged amid much political um, intrigue and backroom dealings. And it was absolutely wonderful. Mary was actually invited to the Nixon White House to view an exhibit by Andrew Wyeth, the American painter. And by that time, Mary had realized the importance of marshaling people from both sides of the aisle. I mean, let's face it, everybody gets cancer. It doesn't matter, cancer doesn't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, young or old, famous or not. If you're gonna get cancer, you're gonna get cancer. And so there was no point in, and she kind of used that strategy with all of her lobbying. It was no point in alienating one side against the other. Bring them all in, and let's get the job done. So she wisely enlisted the help with a very prominent fellow New Yorker called Elmer Bobst, who Nixon considered his second father, mm-hmm. and Bobst was instrumental in the entire quest for for a cure for cancer, her entire crusade. And when, mentioned, when Mary mentioned um, her interest in curing cancer, Nixon said, oh, yeah, Elmer mentioned that to me, too. I had a birthday party for him last month, and he mentioned that to me, too. Other than that one occasion, she never spoke to him about this again. She had her emissaries um, and proxies do it for her. But she was very communicative with Ted Kennedy. And in fact, he told this famous story when um, he first entered the Senate Um, and President Kennedy said to him, um, you know, if you want to know what's going on in medical research or really anywhere outside of Washington and maybe somewhat inside of Washington, you better get to know Mary Lasker pretty well. And Ted Kennedy took that as a as a thing to do, particularly because, again, she was such good friends with his mother. Mm -hmm. So I really I researched to understand how bills are brought before each body of Congress, how they pass Congress. Um, how each body, how then the whole Congress has to pass them, how things are funded, which is very different than simply being approved. So each body of Congress has committees. Each committee has subcommittees. And Ted Kennedy was the chair of the very important health subcommittee in Congress. And that he really wanted to be in a different committee, and he was disappointed that he he didn't get that. And at the end of the day, it was um, it was the perfect place for him to really do more. I mean, he might have aggrandized his his um, CV, his um, resume, if he'd been the uh, held the other uh, position. But he changed lives being the health of the Senate committee. Or changed lives by being chairman of the health senate committee. So they held hearings. They came up with a bill, and um, the bill and the bill was to simply create a commission to study what could best be done to cure cancer. The bill passed, and they were often running into um, Congress or in, yeah into the House, and the House passed the bill and it looked great. Unfortunately, the person who was gonna be the most help um, was not reelected. And so they had to scramble a little bit. Then in the following year, in 1971, when Kennedy was able to get this, this bill passed, um, when it came time for the, there were there were some grumblers in the Senate, but when it came time for the Congress, that was when the gloves came off and the fight really was on. Wow. And um, the the bargaining and the wrangling and the, the whole thing just was absolutely astounding that these kinds of things, you know, we wonder today what holds up bills. This was long before they ever did all the pork barreling that they do now on bills were piling on all these other things. This was just simply trying to get agreement. And the biggest stickling point was this independent NASA like organization that Mary and the commission that she helped create felt would really make things move faster without the bureaucracy. And the telling point this is pretty funny in one of the hearings, <clears throat> there were so picture you know the hearing room, you've seen them on TV. So mm-hmm. there were the important Congressman, this was in the house, congressman sitting up at the table, asking the questions, and then directly in front of them was a table with three microphones. It was the head of National Institutes of Health um, and a couple of other people that were important, but not the head of the National Cancer Institute, the instructor or the director of the National Cancer Institute. He was sitting behind in a chair. Mm -hmm. And There was a doctor being questioned at the time. And when the Congressman said, so that fellow behind you the other day, he said something important. Do you believe what he said? And the doctor being questioned said, this is the point. The fellow sitting behind me, whose name you can't remember, he should be sitting at this table. He should be leading the research. And that was why, because there was so much bureaucracy, why they felt it should be an independent agency.
1: So let's, let's talk about the passing of, you know, the National Cancer Act. Um, What was Mary thinking and feeling when this happened? I imagine she must have felt amazing.
0: (laughs) You know, she was, she was interesting in that it it wasn't necessarily her way or the highway, but a little bit it was because But not for self-aggrandizement. She wasn't doing any of this for the attention, nor was it for the money. She had oodles of her own money. That was why she always stayed in the background. She called herself a catalytic agent. She just wanted to light the fire and then wanted everybody else you know, to go to work to make it happen. And right. she would give them whatever resources were necessary, including some of her own money to make sure that the right congressmen and senators held positions in the right, you know, got reelected or got elected, and then went into the appropriate committees. But anyway, so at the end of the day, um, the National Cancer Act saw to it that National Cancer Institute stayed within NIH, but that the director reported directly to the president that there was a council that um, had to be made up of at least a third lay people. It couldn't be all scientists and doctors because the lay people bring a different vision um, right. to everything. Um, she made so that existed. Um, they also made sure to give to put in ample money, historic levels of money, one point eight billion billion dollars, which in today's money is over eleven billion, mm-hmm. and that was. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the money that's going to carry the, this thing over the over the goal line. So right. it wasn't exactly as she had hoped, but boy, right. the things that did happen really fast tracked the research that that went on afterwards.
1: Another thing I wanted to talk about um, was her interests outside of um, cancer. I know um, she was, she was an art collector um and i i am also curious about her interest in flowers as well and beautification if you could speak to any of that
0: of course and she said one time someone asked her in a magazine interview um how she could justify or reconcile these long days spent arduously reading all the material that she did, in, and all the days she spent pounding the halls of Congress, how she could reconcile that with this love of art and, and flowers. And she said, you know, I kind of think that beautiful things lift our hearts. And no matter what you can afford, you should be able to at least see beautiful things, whether it's flowers Outside or art in a museum. And so I know that at the end of the day, I can have those things. But apart from, you know, the perfect quotes, she got her love for flowers from her mother, who had created several parks in their little hometown uh, of Watertown. And then after Mary's father died, her mother came to live with her in New York and proclaimed it the dirtiest city she'd ever seen. And Mary, one day driving down um, Park Avenue in her limousine, got to thinking there's this big space in between the two sides of the avenue, why not fill that with flowers, so she donated I don't know how many tulip bulbs and then started donating um she still owned well actually she didn't own albert had sold his big estate uh north of chicago Mm -hmm. to the university of chicago and they were using it for horticultural horticultural experiments Uh and she got them to work on a chrysanthemum that would bloom long after all the other blooms Um, had stopped that could survive the cold a little bit better so then she scattered those not only all over the country but even made them available to other countries she and her sister sent packets of seeds to queen elizabeth for her gardens then she took on um she took on the un plaza and planted a series of cherry trees in front of it dedicating them to albert and then um, she in her because she was such good friends with Ladybird, who asked her, what projects do you think I should work on as, as first lady? Mary said, Well, beautification, you love flowers, I'll help you. So mm-hmm. then the two of them went to work planting cherry trees, more cherry trees, and planting daffodils all over Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. The art interest came from her major in college. She was an art history major. And her first job right out of college was uh, working in a gallery in New York and then went to work in a second gallery owned by a man who ultimately became her first husband. Mm -hmm. And they would go on buying trips to Europe and save a few of the smaller paintings, but the bigger ones, the big masters, they would sell in the gallery Mm -hmm. and um, then... Little by little, um, she divorced her first husband. He suffered from um, alcoholism Mm -hmm. and she just realized that she wouldn't survive if she stayed. So when she was single, she continued buying pieces she could afford. But then with Albert's money, the doors were opened. And Albert knew nothing about art. He had the same opinion that many people do, my own husband included, although he's changed his tune some, that (laughs) you have to know things in order to appreciate art. And Mm. she said, that's not true at all. You look at something, if it speaks to you, if you think it's pretty, then you should buy it. Mm. Otherwise, move on. Mm. And so there were some cute incidences that happened where they found things together and fell in love with them and then then there were other times where Mary bought pieces and Albert hated them and (laughs) he would put a note on the back that said this is not to be part of the Albert Lasker collection this is Mary's and I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Their art collection was one of the largest private collections in the country probably even in the top twenty in the world, and okay. there are pieces scattered all over our country uh, on exhibit that um, we
1: can go see as well. There are so many wonderful stories that you've told about Mary Lasker. I'm just wondering if there are any that, in particular, stand out to you as being just a favorite, you know, tale about her life or some anecdote about her that you'd really like to just share for the sake of the podcast.
0: I think one of one of the most interesting things. Um, that I discovered, and it's so smart, and someday I hope I have the opportunity to use it. Mm -hmm. It was her recipe for successful dinner parties. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean a recipe in the kitchen, and I don't mean success as in everyone has a good time. She only threw parties with a purpose. (laughs) So she realized that at, at a dinner table, and so Imagine a very large space where you have maybe 50 people dining uh, or 48 because it needed to be divisible by four. So you set up tables of four. And at each table, there was a politician, a celebrity, a journalist and a scientist. The politician was interested in the celebrity. The celebrity was interested in the journalist writing something glowing on the front page about him or her. The scientist wanted the politician's interest to fund whatever research they were working on. Mm-hmm. She repeated that over decades, and it never failed in getting the right people together. It's it was- not to mention, would you love to have been like a fly on the wall listening to these conversations? Because she had she had Jennifer Jones, she had um oh any number of celebrities at the table and lots of politicians and then these you know kind of bespectacled scientists, and she'd always instruct them and say, Okay, these people don't know anything about what you're doing, just tell them how you're going to cure cancer. <laughs>
1: Wow, that's fantastic. i just wrapping up here. Is there anything I missed? Anything else you'd really like to share? My favorite
0: quote um, comes from the cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead, who said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And that's true on all levels. We don't have to have Mary's level of, of money or her level of contacts um, you know, if, if some if a cause speaks to you, jump on it, because every little candle that you light builds a bigger flame and a bigger fire. And if you can light fires under people, that's really exciting.
1: Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast, podcasts of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CancerHistProj. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by The Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Cedar sinai Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com slash sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.